0: make your way in as soon as possible. Um, I'm just going to float this idea out there. So if you're a leader, please know that we're going to have a meeting on this and hear your thoughts on it. But we're just floating the idea of moving the second service to 12 o'clock. And uh, there's one thumb right there. So we got one vote. And the reason for that is because um, my beloved wife, who is ever the more intuitive one, she just... Basically, So just give you. I'm going to give you church philosophy. How many knows that church philosophy doesn't always line up with Jesus' philosophy? You know what I'm saying? The way that men want to do things is not always the way the Lord wants to do things. So in church circles, most churches, they will tell you when you're structuring your service and all of the wonderful things that they try to help you with, they'll tell you not to go longer than 60 minutes. Well, that's completely out of the question. I mean, I, I don't believe, you know, you, you go to movies longer than that. I mean, it's like, give me a break. We, that's the, all the time we can eke out for Jesus is once a week. For, you know, so we went with 90 minutes, and we've been trying to do that. But something Sherry was telling me is that we're more of a ministry-oriented church, and we're more of a full-service ministry. We're not fast food, so we're not, like, trying to rush you in and rush you out the door. And the more we have ministered and the more we have allowed the Lord to minister to the people, the more we've seen that people really need ministry. And so rather than trying to crunch everything together in the time frame, we cu- we cu- we're consistently running 15 minutes o- over. Like every week it's like 15 minutes. I mean, today we're a little bit more because we had a lot of testimonies in the first service. But we're running 15 minutes over almost consistently. And so rather than trying to fight the clock all the time, why don't we just pivot and let, let, it, let it happen? So we're going to do a 10 and a 12. That's what we're floating. So we're going to have a leadership meeting on it, and so uh, I, I, don't, I didn't want to make the decision without, like, actually listening to people and, you know, like, oh, we're just going to pull the trigger. Well, when do we do this? You know, I want to I give people an opportunity. If you're on leadership, I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to hear your, your insights on it. So just to let you know that we are working forward into the process, but we want to give an opportunity to minister. All right, so we're going to do, uh, uh, do a... Book of David, or Book of David, Book of, book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. We're doing uh, the life of David. And uh, so what I'm going to run you through this morning is the second chapter, or the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. This, um, this story actually is paralleled or told again in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Uh, just to kind of give you a familiarization with your Bible, First and Second Chronicles uh, is a parallel book. It's, there's another book in the Bible called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is called a retelling. So when you go through the first four books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, then you come to the last book, which is Deuteron- Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is called the book of retelling because in Deuteronomy, it's telling and retelling a lot of the stories that were laid out by the Lord in the first four books, First and Second. Corinthians. Chronicles is, are, is very, similar, uh, very very similar type of book. They're books that uh, retell a lot of the things that happened in first and second Kings and in first and Second Samuel. So you'll get a retelling. And each one of the books kind of gives a it's kind of like the four Gospels. There's different angles and different details that they're highlighting. And so Second Samuel chapter 6 and First Chronicles 15, they're parallel, they're parallel stories. They run the same way, a little bit different detail. But what's going on here is David, is now king, and David is not just king, he's king of a unified kingdom. So he took the throne of Judah, and then seven years later, now uh, there's been a unification of Judah with the north. So as you can tell, if we were here with Elijah, and the the division had happened, the north and the south in Israel has always been divided, and it was only unified, the only time they've ever really had actual unity was under David and Solomon. So David unifies the kingdom, or the Lord unifies the kingdom with David. And the, one of the key pieces here is it's been 20 years since the man received the word and the anointing. Okay? So he gets a word, you're going to be King David, gets the anointing on him, and 20 years go by before he actually walks in it. Is that crazy? I mean, we think we like fast food. Oh, the Lord told me last week it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen tomorrow. I'm waiting on it, Jesus. Where is it? Come on, it's been two hours. You gave me that word. I'm waiting to walk out the door, and I'm waiting to meet the... It, it, not only did it take time... It took a process. Say this, the Word of the Lord will come to pass in its time and in its process. I must commit and submit to the process. When a Word of God comes on your life, the decisions that you make accelerate it or delay it. A lot of times the decisions don't disqualify the Word over you, but they will delay it. The decisions that we make can either make the word of God come to pass quicker, or it can delay it. It just depends on how yielded you are to the process. So it's been 20 years since he was anointed, and David chooses Jerusalem as the capital for his new kingdom. Why did he choose Jerusalem for his capital? Well, there's two reasons. The first reason is it was strategic, So, Jerusalem wasn't so far south where the north would feel alienated. Jerusalem sat on the border of the two kingdoms. And so, Jerusalem was kind of a neutral place for the two kingdoms to come together. So, there was a strategic idea going on here. And then there was a prophetic idea. There's always something prophetic. If we're talking about the Bible, there's prophetic. And so, there's a prophetic fulfillment as well. In Genesis, as God began to deal with Abraham, Abraham is the father or the bloodline, the forerunner of the Hebrew people. And so everything that God did with Abraham, God worked with Abraham, chose Abraham. Abraham believed God and the Lord said, here's somebody I can use, somebody who actually believes what I'm saying, who actually trusts me when I speak. So God chose Abraham and through his people, he brings to pass the Jewish people and ultimately the land of Israel. But God made specific promises to Abraham. He not only made specific promises to Abraham, there were certain events in Abraham's life that took place. One of them was where Abraham offered up Isaac. Anybody know, ever heard that story? Abraham offered up Isaac. Okay, so he took his son, his only son, and offered him up. The Lord, of course, thought, uh, human sacrifice. Yeah, he was trying to, so that's a long story. I don't want to get into that. It's going to take me way out the way. So anyway, Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, which was in Jerusalem. Abraham also had an encounter with a king named Melchizedek, And he had an encounter with Melchizedek in the same region. And this Melchizedek was a guy who didn't have a beginning or didn't have an end. And he came out meeting Abraham with wine and bread. Sound familiar? Okay, so here comes Abraham. He has no no lineage at all. He's an eternal being, and he shows up with wine and bread. And he's called Melchizedek. And he was the high priest of Salem. Well, what's Salem? Salem is Jerusalem. So he's the high priest of Jerusalem. So Abraham had this encounter with this theophany. It's a divine appearing of Jesus. Abraham had this encounter with Jesus in this region. So David is not only choosing Jerusalem because of its strategic significance, David is choosing Jerusalem because of its prophetic significance. And so God, David chooses Jerusalem. He's on the throne, he's sitting on the throne, he's achieved what God has set before him, and now he's entering into a new destiny and a new chapter. But David says to himself, I'm not gonna do this without the presence of God. And so David sends for the Ark of the Lord. In the Old Testament, see we now are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know that or not. The Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's with you, in you, and He can be, and He manifests upon you. This is how the Holy Spirit works. Right? So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went, came and went, came and went on top of the prophets. Also, the Lord would put his presence on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So there was a box. God told them to build a box. So they build this box, they make it the way God tells them to make it, and the Lord says, I'm going to put my presence on top of that box. So the Ark of the Covenant rep- was representative of the presence of the Lord among the people. And so David says, if we don't have the Ark, we don't have the presence. And so we, I'm here, I'm on the throne, this is the capital, this is the center of everything. The ark of the Lord needs to be here before the people, Before the Lord's presence needs to be here before the people. And so he sends for the ark. So the ark is what is it? So there, there's, again, this is a deep understanding. Everything the Lord says is not, there's a purpose to it. Jesus doesn't use any word that's not, that, that's vain. And everything the Lord says, there's depth to his word. There's understanding, there's deeper and deeper understandings to what he says. It's like even when you receive a prophetic word, a lot of times you're, you, you give a prophetic word, and, and even when you're, re- you're giving the word, you, you can see different layers of it, or when you're receiving the word, you're receiving the word on a lot of different layers, and so there's all of these depths and layers when God speaks. He told Moses to build an ark. What's the ark? He said, I want you to build me a box. I want you to build the box out of wood. I want you to overlay the wo- the box with gold. So this wooden box made out of a specific wood, overlaid with gold, and into the box, I want you to put the tablets of the law, or the word of God. Into the box, I want you to put the manna, or the shoe bread, the manna that he fed the people in, 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 the, in the desert, and I want you to put the the alms, or a, a symbolic of a prophetic. It's an almond, almond branch that budded. I want you to put that in the box as well. Then I want you to put a lid on it that's pure gold. No wood in the box. Everybody say this. No wood in the lid. So God. So Moses builds a box. So here I'm going to get you into some symbolisms. Wood in the scripture is a, is a prophetic significance of humanity. Okay? I don't have time to build it out, but just trust me. You don't have to trust me. You can look it up for yourself. But wood is symbolic of humanity. So God is saying, I want you to build a box. I want you to be wood, and I want you to overlay it with gold. What he's indicating is that humans, overlaid with the glory of God, carry are to carry these things. We are to carry the prophetic significance of God. We're to carry the provision of the Lord, the, the manna that comes down from heaven. We're literally to carry heaven on earth. And we're also to carry the word of God, which was the tablets. So that was the symbolism. Man was to, be over, or was to be covered with the glory of God and was to carry forth the things that God had put in him. That's who the believer is. You are humanity covered with glory. That's who you're supposed to be. This is who we are. And we're to carry his word, we're to carry the prophetic significance and we're to carry the bread that comes down from heaven. We're to carry his world into ours. You may not, have to, you may not be able to understand what I just said to you, but th- those are facts nonetheless. Then the lid was to be made out of pure gold. And the reason that it was to be made out of pure gold because the lid was called the mercy seat, And God says there is no humanity in mercy. Mercy is a divine act. Mercy comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. That's why, so we have a box with wood overlaid. Well, why wasn't the lid overlaid? Because the lid served a different purpose. Man covered with God's glory and overarched and overshadowed with mercy. Man holds this position because of the mercy of God. Man stands and carries forth these things because of the mercy of God. Not because of human works or human righteousness or human deeds. God is the one who crowns you. God is the one who crowns me. God is the one who crowns you. You, have, you are called into the kingdom not because of your beauty, your wonder, your intellect. You're your perfect or broken or whatever life that you've brought forth, none of that qualifies you for the kingdom. What qualifies you for the kingdom is the mercy of the Lord. And you have embraced it and received it. So you're qualified not by you. That's what's wonderful about it. You didn't give it to you, so you can't take it away. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. The gifts of calling a God are without repentance. What he gives, he doesn't take away. So you're covered with mercy and his habitation is there. So they were to take this ark, and they were to carry it forth with them wherever they wanted. It was literally the center of God's presence and the center of worship. It was also called the ark of testimony. It was hidden behind a veil. Why? Because at that time, man had not, man was still in sin, righteousness had not come, and so man was not allowed to look upon the glory of the Lord. If you remember the story, in Moses tried to look upon the Lord, and the Lord said, you're not gonna see me, I'll let you see, I'll let you see the backside. As I pass by, you can look on me from behind, but you're not going to see my face. Because man had not been redeemed. Man had not been brought forth. Jesus, ultimately, we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus is the perfect theology, and he's the perfect reflection of the nature of God. And that's another story. So (laughs) they put the ark behind a veil. So the ark was veiled in the tabernacle. And then ultimately, they would build a temple. They would build a house, so it w- used to be in a tent, then they would build a temple, and in the temple, the temple was the same thing as the tent, only it was bricks, it was sticks and bricks, it wasn't just a tent, right? And so they put the ark behind a tent, it was called the Holy of Holies. And every year, the priest, they would have something on Passover called the Passover lamb. Anybody ever heard that one? So Passover's an interesting story. Every family had to bring a lamb, Everyone. Moms and dads, moms didn't have to go, but husbands had to. Men had to be there. It was a requirement. So if mom was home nursing the baby and she couldn't make the journey, the Lord was okay, but the, hu- but the head of the house had to go. An inexcusable. There's actually three feasts that required all men to be there. The family was supposed to come, but if the family and the elderly or there was something there, the Lord would excuse them, but the men never had an excuse. <laughs> when that one should preach, man. Men, you don't have an excuse to not show up. Of all the people who don't have an excuse to show up, the dudes don't have an excuse to not show up because God was trying to influence the head of the house in order to bring about his purposes. And so they had to go to Passover. Every family had to bring a lamb, and then ultimately there was one lamb that was sacrificed for the corporate. So we had individuals, so we have a corporate and an individual thing going on here. Sacrifice of the lamb individually, and then a sacrifice of the lamb corporately. And they would bring the Passover lamb, the corporate lamb, before the high priest. They would hang the, they would hang the lamb upside down, it's called a kosher kill they would hang the lamb upside down. The lamb would literally almost go to sleep. Its jugular would bulge. They would take a flint knife with a basin underneath it and the priest would just very delicately pierce the jugular and let the lamb bleed out. So when they sacrificed the lamb, they weren't like hacking its throat and beating it and bludgeoning it. It was literally just a pierce and then they would let the, they would let the basin fill with blood. And you say, well, why would, God, why would God sacrifice animals? Because sin requires payment. Sin requires payment. And the Bible says where there is no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. They actually would bond to the lamb. You are required to take the lamb into your house. So Charmaine would have to take the lamb into her house and Lovely would go, oh mommy, I love little lammy. Lammy's so nice, he's so good. And all the kids would get to love the lamb and oh, the lamb's so fun and so nice. And then three days later, dad would be walking the lamb away. Where's the lamb going? Why didn't the lamb come back? And what God was trying to indicate is that sin costs something. It costs you and costs me something. And there's a pain involved. And God, when he sent his son, when the son came forth from the father, and it cost the Lord something to redeem you, just like it cost the Israelites something and there was an emotional attachment, he expected them to have an emotional attachment. He wanted them to emotionally attach because he also wanted them to feel the pain of the sacrifice that had to be made. Sin costs. Yeah, crickets. <laughs> so they would pierce the blood, the blood would fall into the basin for the corporate lamb. The high priest and only the high priest would take the basin of the corporate lamb and he would go through the veil. And he would make atonement, not individual atonement, but this was a national atonement. This was an atonement for all of the, God, all of the people. He would go before the veil in front of the ark, the only time he was allowed to do it, once a year. He would dip his finger in the blood and he would strike the ark with the blood. He would sprinkle the ark, then he would, go, he would burn incense, there was a couple things he was supposed to do, and then he would go back out through the veil. He wore bells and they put a rope on him. Because if the priest wasn't sanctified and he went into the presence of God unsanctified, he would drop dead. And so they have guys out there holding the rope and another dude listening at the veil. You still hear bells? Yeah, he's still alive, ching, 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 ching. Ching 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 ching, and if they heard a, if you heard him hit the floor, then they would just pull him out and he'd be dead, because they were required to sanctify themselves. You can't come into the presence of God. You must be sanctified. That's why people go, oh, when I get before God, Lord, I'm just going to tell Him. Well, you're not going to say a word, dude. Without Christ, you will say not a word. You will be silent before Him, and you won't even be able to speak. If you die without Christ, you will stand before Him, but you won't be able to get. A Word out of your mouth. You're not going to sit there and reason with Jesus and talk about all your merits and how wonderful you are. There is no atonement. There is nothing. You will not be able to come before his presence into redemption or into his kingdom without blood on your life. And so when the unbeliever goes, oh, I'm just going to reason with God. I heard that so many times. Oh, I'm just going to get before the Lord. And the Lord's just gonna, he's, you're not going to do nothing, dude. <laughs> your bones are going to give way and you're going to be shaking and every part of your being is going to shake. I can assure you because of his glory spirits create atmospheres when a spirit is in the room there is an atmosphere that's why the Holy Spirit's in the room and there's an atmosphere when you're before the Lord in that case and you go before the white throne of judgment we go before a rainbow throne we go through a a throne that says what is a rainbow it's exactly what it is it's covenant it's joy it's peace you know it's fun we go before the, the the Christian goes to the fun throne right The unbeliever goes to the white throne. There's two thrones. He sits upon both thrones. The Bema seat is the seat of reward. That's why he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, that's the Lord on the Bema seat. And then when he sits upon the white throne, he's judging the living and the dead. That's not the place you wanna go, okay? And the atmosphere of the Lord on the white throne is an atmosphere of judgment. And you will not be talking anything. Nobody's gonna be talking smack on that day because the Lord sits upon the seat to judge. The living and the dead. And you go before the white throne, nobody's saying nothing because of the atmosphere that will be exuded in that room. I'm just telling you. And they had to strike the ark with blood. And the ark is called the ark of testimony. Well, what is the ark? Testimony means to show forth or to speak forth. Well, what is the ark actually speaking forth? The ark is speaking forth the blood. That's when it's talking about the testimony, the Ark of Testimony, what's to testifying of? Well, it's testifying of the rod that Aaron blood, you know, and the met from heaven and all, yeah, yeah, but that's inside it. If you were to look on the outside of the Ark, what is the statement? What would be the most significant thing about that Ark? Well, the gold, yeah, the beauty, the wonder, okay, but what about the blood? You would always ask about why is there blood all over it? Because generation after generation, the high priest would strike that Ark with blood. And so there would be layer upon layer upon layer upon layer built up on top of that ark. It's the ark of testimony. It testifies that it's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of the Lamb. Without the blood of the Lamb, there's nothing going to happen. Tom Cruise isn't saving you. Buddhism isn't going to save you. Good works isn't going to save you. Nothing's going to save you but the blood of Jesus. And the, Yeah, come on. And the good news is, and this is the good news, the blood of Jesus saves us to the uttermost. It doesn't matter how bad you are and how wicked you are, whatever you've done or whoever you think you've been, or what, it doesn't matter what the mess is. The Bible says that the blood of Christ saves us to the uttermost. and But without Him, there is none. There is none. Oh, one of my favorite verses. When we, rene- when we deny the blood of Jesus and we treat it as a common thing, we trample it underfoot. The Bible says there remains no forgiveness of sins. If you treat the blood of Christ and you, tr- and you treat it as something common, and you treat it like it means nothing, or it's just one among many things. The Bible says you discard, you, 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 uh, you offend the spirit of grace, you treat the blood of the covenant as a common thing, and you step upon Jesus' offering. He says, for you, there remains, no penalty. there remains no more forgiveness. Only thing that remains when people do that is the fear of impending judgment. There's no more atonement. So if you reject Jesus, there's no atonement anywhere. Man, you can't save you, and no one, no other name under heaven is given by which we may be saved. None. No, Buddha, Allah, Krishna, I don't care who it is, L. Ron Hubbard, Tom Cruise, nobody can save you. Jesus and Jesus alone can save you. And at the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. And those who receive Christ are forgiven and born again and brought into his kingdom. It's so good. So the ark is at a guy's house named Abinadab. Long story there, I won't get into why it's there, but the ark is not where it's supposed to be. Israel's stupidity had allowed the ark to be out of place. So the the, Ready? Oh, this is there's a word. The glory of God is out of place because of the stupidity of God's people. Could it be that the glory of God in our culture is out of place because of the stupidity of God's people, in particular, God's leaders? Could it be? Glory of the Lord was not where it was supposed to be. It was out of place. It was in the house of Abinadab. It wasn't supposed to be in the house of Abinadab. Nowhere did God go, hey, I want you to put my ark in the house of Abinadab. But the Lord allowed his glory. Here we go again. The Lord allowed his glory to be misplaced until somebody missed it. Until somebody goes, hey, you notice there's something different? There's no glory here. You notice there's something different? There's no power here. There's no resonance or flow of the spirit here. And if the people didn't miss it, the Lord wasn't offering it. You see it in Ezekiel when the glory left the ark. There's another story where they had the temple and when the glory left Israel. It's a beautiful story. Sad story, but beautiful. It says the glory lifted from the ark. Nobody noticed. The glory went to the threshold of the door. Nobody noticed. The glory went to the outer post. Nobody noticed. The glory went to the outer court outside the camp. Nobody noticed. The glory hovered above the hill. Nobody noticed. And the glory went over the hill and was gone forever. And the Lord wrote upon his house, Ichabod, no glory. And that glory would not return to the nation until Jesus was born. It was the Shekinah glory returning. That's why there was a star. Because the star was symbolic of the glowing Shekinah, abiding presence of the Lord. The glory had returned. And Israel, again, was indifferent to it. Didn't different. Didn't care. Meant nothing to them. How many Christians does it mean nothing to? The presence means nothing in our churches. Nothing. And until the church begins to value the glory and the church begins to handle the glory, we're never gonna see the glory. It's true. Wishful thinking. We can cry revival all day long, but until we learn to handle it, until we learn to understand it, until we learn to acknowledge it and honor it and begin to manifest it, we're not seeing anything. Wishful thinking. And just so you know, there are churches that want, the, there are churches that just could care less about the glory you say I don't believe that. <laughs> you don't get out much. This is the problem. My wife and I were talking. I felt like the Lord told me because we were seeing, you know, we were talking about fire starters, seeing people healed. Oh wow, man! You know, yeah, yeah, okay. Seeing healed knee, uh, knees, elbows, ears, and toes, or whatever. You know, we're seeing healings. You know, like in physical bodies being healed, right? Sickness and disease. Well, we're working on that, but we're seeing clear manifestations of healing, clear, right? And the Lord began to, you know, we're all celebrating everything, and of course, I'm like. Being, I'm glowing. You know, week one, I went home. I was like, "Wow." I don't know about you all. If you were fire starters when we were praying for healing, were you like humming? You like hum? You know what I'm saying? You go. You're just like, just like, you know, for two days. And I'm just like geeking out. I'm like, "Man, that was freaking awesome." You know, awesome stuff. Stuff that you live for, right? And the Lord began to deal with me. And He's like, having my church is 2100 years old. We're in the 21st century, so let's just get this straight. We're 2100 years old, and the church itself cannot manifest power in scale. Is that a problem? We're 2100 years old, and we cannot manifest power in scale. That's a problem. What's a problem? I was telling Carmen, I said, what should happen is that when people are sick, they should go look for a Christian. They should go, hey, Carmen, hey, here you are. You know, hey, I got this thing going on. I you mean, know, I know you're a Christian, and you know, and I don't know what you guys do, but I know you pray for the sick. Would you pray for me? We shouldn't be going to doctors and physicians and, all. I've got to fly to the Cleveland Clinic. The faith that we put in doctors is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you say, what are you saying? We shouldn't go to doctors? That's not what I'm saying. Jesus doesn't have a problem with doctors. He's got a problem being what? That's exactly right. Good crowd. Love you. Good, awesome. That's the issue. Coming to me, my grandson's born, all this stuff. They're like, oh, he's got platelet problems. Boy's got platelet problems. We got a, you know, there's been platelet problems, platelet problems. We got a problem with his blood. We got problems with his blood. I'm just like, listen, we're not of this world. Wrong answer. That's not the issue. Not of this world. I'm going to put the blood of Jesus in him right now, and there's not going to be any blood problems. Two days later, oh, he has no platelet problems. <laughs> Oh, everybody's like, for are all out. Oh, my gosh. You know, and everybody's going natural-minded, natural-minded. And Sherry and I are looking at each other, and I'm like, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Like, let's just be very clear here. We are not of this world. That is not my inheritance. That is not mine. I'm not receiving it. I put more faith in you. We put more faith in the word of a doctor than you do in Jesus. What does the Lord say? Does the Lord say he has a platelet problem? Then there's no flipping platelet problem. I mean, we've got to wake up to what we are. I mean, seriously, this is a problem. We're, we're of no effect. That's why the church, I tell you, that's why the church is trampled underfoot. He said, if you lose your savior, you're good for nothing and to be thrown out on the street and people are gonna trample on you. Oh, we're just being persecuted. No, we've lost our savor. We're being trampled on because we're not cities on a hill. We're being trampled on because we're not the light of the world. We're not living towards our destiny. Well, they're just persecuting us. It's just getting really hard out there, pastor. Let the salt come forth. Let the light shine. Let the glory come forth. Hunger for it. Learn to handle it. So what they did, they built a man-made cart. They put the ark on a cart. So they're driving down the road. David's like, woo, gonna bring the ark back into the city. Mm, yeah. the oxen are walking. Was in the house of Abinadab. Abinadab had two sons, Ahio and Uzzah. They were Levites, this is important. We'll come back to that. As the ark journeyed, the Bible says the oxen stumbled. Never said the ark stumbled. It said the oxen stumbled. And so Uzzah said, hey, I think I need to help hold steady the ark. Uzzah touches the ark and drops dead. That's hard, right? You know, we here read that and we're like, wow. David had the same reaction. It's like, who can deal with this God? The problem here is this. Next slide. He sends it to Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I'll come back to that. Uzzah was a Levite. Levites were directly in charge of handling the ministry of the Lord. Uzzah should have known, you don't put the ark on a cart. That is not the way the Lord said, my glory will be carried. And so Uzzah was a person, more than likely because he was a descendant of of Eli, he should have known how to handle the ark. He should have known how to handle glory. Christian, you're a priest before your father. Did you know that? We are a kingdom of priests. Do you know how to handle the glory? It's okay if you answer no. It's not an issue if you know how to handle it. If you say, no, I don't know how to handle it. But the issue is, is that you need to learn how to handle the glory. The glory does not sit upon man-made objects. So they had made a man-made object. They made a cart. Oh, we're going to make an ark. And we're gonna, they presumed upon the Lord. This is what we do. We're going to go, I'm going to build a relationship. And I'm going to expect God's glory to be on that relationship. And when the glory is not on that relationship because you made it, We go, oh, God's not real. You know, because the glory does not sit on man-made things. We build a business and we build a business with our intellect and we do all these wonderful things with our imagination and our ability. And the Lord is excluded. And once we've built the monument to ourselves, we expect God's glory to come. His glory's not coming. The glory does not sit upon things that we make. The glory sits upon things that he makes. Now, if the Lord brings the, that's why marriage, when when marriage is founded in the Lord and the Lord brings it to pass, his glory's there. That's why a business, when it's brought forth from the idea of God's heart and it's partnered with him to bring it into the world, that's why the glory's there. I'm trying to show you why the glory isn't there because probably you made it. (laughs) You're putting an ark on a cart. You mean to back up and dismantle the cart and go, wait a minute, Lord, I'm sorry here. I'm building something wrong. You know, show me how to carry this. I need to build this in partnership with you, not against you, not away from you. So it's partnership. Marriage, children, family, work, business, all finance, all of these things are partnership. I see people with money all the time. They handle their money any way they want. Any way they want. And they wonder why there's no glory on their finances because they handle it any way they want. Any way they want. mean you, You're saying, put the glory on my money, Lord. Put the glory on my finances. Get it off the cart, Kevin, and I'll put my glory on it. Do it the way that I said and I'll put my glory on it. His glory's not on what you make, people. <laughs> I'm just sharing it with you. I'm giving you truth. I'm telling you why the elephant's in the room. You know, a lot of churches don't want to talk about what the elephant's in the room. This is the problem. We're, we're, we're doing things out of, out, of, out of alignment with what he said. The ark was to be carried upon the shoulders of the priests. The ark does, the, the glory does not rest upon man-made things. The glory rests upon his people, his priests. And if you really want to get technical, it's a representative, not just of Jesus, but of his church. The government shall be upon his shoulders. So not just that Jesus bear the government, but the government of his people is in the church. We carry the government of heaven. Did you know that? We rule and we have authority. You rule and you have authority. That's why the devil is always trying to get you into partnership, because he can't do anything to you without an agreement. Because he doesn't have authority. You have to give it to him. He didn't have authority. Adam had it. He had to get Adam to give him his authority before he could do anything. It's the same in the life of the believer. The unbeliever, all bets are off. So if you're not in Christ, all bets are off. Good luck. You need to get into Jesus. But to the believer, what he's trying to do is get you into an agreement. He's trying to get you to agree that there's platelets in that boy's boy's got platelet problems. I'm not agreeing with that. No way. Not on my watch. He's trying to get you to agree that nothing's ever going to change. I'm sorry, not on my watch. He's trying to get you to agree that everything's going to fall apart. It's always been this way. He's trying to get you into an agreement because he cannot put authority over you unless you agree. Whose report are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Oh, I don't know about this, Pastor. I don't know. It's kind of strange and out there. It's the, God has given you authority. You have the government of heaven on your, on your shoulders. You may not know it, but I guarantee you the enemy knows. The devil does. That's why he's constantly lying to you. He's a liar. He's a liar. He's a liar, a liar, a liar, a liar, a liar. And he's trying to bring you into a communion with him. Jesus is trying to get you into, a com- into, a- into an agreement because heaven comes. The spiritual world works through agreements. He's trying to get you into agreement so heaven can come. The enemy's trying to get you into agreement so bondage can come. That's why believers are in bondage. Bondage, 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 bondage. I was watching this show on, I uh, shared it a couple weeks ago, just on this whole thing with, uh, this guy had, a, I think it was bipolar, and so it was a story of this guy's life, and, and I wanted to watch it, and I wanted to see and eat why, you know, okay, the guy's bipolar, and I wanted to tr- try to understand, is this spiritual, is this chemical, what, what is this? And so that's why, I'm wa- my wife walks out and watching me, sees me watching this crazy, she's just like, why are you watching this? I said, because I'm trying to discern it. I said, they're showing excerpts of this guy's life, and I'm trying to discern into his life what's going on, right? And I watched him, and he says, oh, you know, it's been in my family for generations. My mother was bipolar. My grandfather was bipolar. On, down, and on. He just goes in and says, so I'm bipolar. Well, right there's an agreement, okay? There's a right of inheritance. First of all, he doesn't know Jesus, so again, he's not, he's all bets are off. And second of all, he's in an agreement with the enemy that this is the way it is, and this is the way it's always gonna be. And then I watched the doctors in and out of the hospital, eight times in 12 years. No different. Medicate him to the utmost. No different. Everybody will go, he needs to go see a doctor. And Tim and I were talking and I said, why doesn't the church get that opportunity? Why can't I work with a guy eight times over 12 years? Why can't you put him in a, in, a, in, a, in a healing house or in a healing room for 90 days? They put him in a therapy crazy house for 90 days and medicate him. Why can't we get a group of believers and we begin to create a healing house and we put him in there for 90 days and see what they do, see what we can do? Why don't we get that opportunity? The Christian gets one or two shots, and if we don't make it, oh, your, your God doesn't work. The, 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 the medical profession gets 50, and we still put faith in them. Your doctor has a practice. You know what it means? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to practice on you. <laughs> it's exactly what it means. Some of you, you go to doctors, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're, they're giving you all these different prescriptions, and then you come back to them, and they go, now, how are you reacting to that? And then when you tell them, they make notes. They make notes because they're practicing the medicine on you. Just a thought. They didn't know how to handle the glory. God told them to handle it the right way. The Ark was in his house, so Uzzah was a Levite. He should have known, he didn't. Uzzah was also in Uzzah's house, and so Uzzah became familiar with it. A lot of Christians have become familiar with the glory because they've had doctrinal or um, denominational experiences with God. And so they, don't, they can't see the glory of the Lord any other way than the way it's been instructed to them since they were a child. The denomination has taught them this is exactly the way that it is. And so they're, they're, there's a familiarity with the glory. And they can't see the glory beyond what they, what they have been taught it is. Ichabod. No glory. Raised in churches, there's no, no miracles today. There's no such thing as miracles. Who told you that? I don't know, Dr. So-and-so? Oh, wow, you need to start listening to Dr. Jesus... Because there are churches that teach this you come up with against these people and they'll sit right there and tell you. There's no miracles today. Who told you that? They can't see the glory any other way than they've been instructed. It was familiar to Uzzah. The ark had been in his house. Very familiar to him. There was no awe or wonder. He had honor for it, so he tried to honor it by putting it on a cart, but he didn't have any fascination with it. He didn't have any wonder with it. We're called to step into wonder, into the awe of God. Awesome. We're called to step into everything's possible, anything's possible. We're to live by another realm, not the realm of the earth. And a lot of times people can't handle the glory, they don't understand the glory because they see it in terms of what they've always known. Raised in a denomination, raised in certain things, raised with certain mindsets, taught certain things. That's why the unbeliever and a lot of times people who have no religious background are the best people in the world because you just hand it to them. They, they believe anything. They don't have denominational filters coming up going, wait a minute, I was told there is no miracles. I was told that if I speak in tongues, I need to be careful because that might be a demonic tongue. Who told you that? Who told you that? It's true? Oh, I don't know. That's demonic. We had a guy here, he was from a Baptist guy, one of the last times when we prayed for him. Remember, I don't know if Hank, you remember that guy? The guy was sitting over here, came up here. He was a Baptist dude. Didn't know anything about spiritual stuff, but he's just trying to come and hear it. Comes, dude, right out of the gate, bam, starts speaking in tongues. He goes back, speaks to his pastors. pastor said, that's not of God. <laughs> Last time I saw him. You just encountered glory. But some, you had a familiarity and somebody told you it wasn't of God. Did Jesus tell you it wasn't of him? No. I don't know if you get what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> they honored, God. They honored the, the glory in a way that seemed right to them. They give it to Obed-Edom. Obed, the word Obed means honorable servant. So David gives it to this dude who's an honorable servant. Edom means red, which which the the tradition is is that he blushed. So when the Lord honored him with his presence, Obed blushed. So he became Obed the red or Obed the blusher. He was a Gittite, which means he lived in the land of Gath, which means he was a Levite ministering in the land of Gath. He too was a Levite. So God put it back, David put it in the house of the Levites. Obed-Edom's house becomes blessed. Checks are in the mail at Obed's house, man, because the glory's there. (laughs) Serious. Obed knew how to handle the presence. Obed knew how to welcome the presence. Obed knew how to honor the presence within his own house and around him. And it's just blessing everywhere. The rabbis say that every woman in his house conceived because it was a mark of fruitfulness. That His daughters, his mother, you know, everybody's having babies. (laughs) David hears of the blessing going on in Obed's house, and he gets jealous Nothing wrong about being jealous for the right things. The Bible says, earnestly covet the best gifts. Be jealous of the best gifts. You see somebody with a prophetic gift, and you go, wow, that's awesome. Man, I honor that. I celebrate that. Lord Jesus, I want that. I want some of that. You know he's going to tell you? I'll give it to you, but not the way he carries it. I'm going to give it the way you're designed to carry it. So I'll give you the same thing, but it'll be unique to you. We should desire what is right. We shouldn't get, oh, I can't believe in him. We make icons out of, oh, you know. It's a big thing. Church constantly, we constantly move towards rock stars. We should honor our leaders, look up to our leaders, respect our leaders, draw from our leaders, but we should never esteem the leader as if it's unattainable to the believer. That's where the problem is. This guy may be further, or this person, this woman may be further along than you, but it doesn't mean that you can't go there. And it's true. It's true. All of the disciples were invited to Jesus's chest. Only one went there. Some of them wanted to sit close. Some of them were good, just good to be in the room. One said, I want all in. I want to go all in. You can go all in. Church has this, this, this crazy, like, we, we hold these guys up as if they're like just, so, they're just anomalies. They've just, this is an epiphany. This guy just appeared from heaven. He translated beyond the veil and just showed up. I mean, you watch these guys. They practically worship these prophetic teachers like it's crazy. If or we worship healing, healing, people that manifest healing. Instead of worshiping them, we should learn from them. And instead of them invoking worship to themselves, they should teach the people. That's the that's the obligation. The obligation is not to receive worship. There's one rock star and his name's Jesus. Okay? I'm not the rock star. The Bible tells me as freely as I've received, freely I give. As I have shown you, you show them. That's what it tells me. And that's what we should do. Obit's house was blessed. David calls the next slide. David calls the Levites together because David knows, man, you Levites, are the, you priests, you're the ones who are supposed to know how to handle the glory, aren't you? And let's just put this in church context. Christian, we're the ones who are supposed to know how to handle the glory, aren't we? <laughs> we're the salt of the earth, not the salt of the whole earth. We're the answer, man. We, we are. So I don't know. It, we are. David made a mistake. He missed an opportunity. Here's a word for you. Some of you in this room have missed opportunities. David didn't beat himself up because he missed an opportunity. So stop beating yourself up because you missed an opportunity. David had an opportunity, he did it the wrong way, he screwed up, he said, wow, I did that wrong. What David did is he backed up, and he course corrected. He said, okay, that wasn't the right way, let me back up and find out what the right way is, and he went again. That's the right thing to do. He brings the, uh, the Levites together, and he tells them, he says, listen, you all, and here's, I feel like it's like right into us, you guys need to sanctify yourselves, you need to set yourselves apart and figure this out. That's what he told them, sanctify yourselves And figure out why we couldn't bring the ark in why the glory we couldn't move the glory Why, why can't we move the glory (laughs) when we're allowed to move the glory why can't we and so they came back to him they understand how to do it we're gonna carry it with the poles we're gonna do all this stuff David's like right on we're gonna do something special he tells them all there's like 200 200 priests in front of him he goes do you sing and the guy says, yeah. He goes, I want you singing in front of the ark. Do you, do you play any instrument? Yeah, okay, I want you playing in front of the instrument. Whatever you do, I want you to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, I want you to find something to do. But I want joy and I want celebration going on before the presence of the Lord. And what he told them was worship isn't an option. Worship isn't something we do, Christian. Worship isn't an option. This is why it's called the tabernacle of David, because David understood worship. He began to put the presence in a position where it could be known, and he began to put the presence in a, in a position where it could be honored. He danced in linen, which means he took off his outer garments, he put on a linen ephod, which is the undergirding of the priest. So he put on the thing that go, the priest wears under his clothing, and he had linen on, which is you know what they wore underneath their clothes. So David's basically dancing in his underwear, his BVDs, you know what I'm saying? So he's jumping and leaping and doing, and doing all these things, And he brought the presence of God into his people. And his wife, Saul's daughter, one of his wives, and I'm going to sit down on this for a minute, she sees David and she says, Oh, how the Lord has made himself undignified before the people, even the daughters of the slaves. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about Michal in a minute. But David's response is awesome. He said, it was before the Lord. And if my lack of dignity brings him honor, then I will be even more undignified than this. If my lack of dignity brings him glory, then I will be even more undignified than this. It's a problem with the church. We let, we're just too dignified. And I guarantee it wasn't just Michal who was looking at him. The priests, the, the priests were probably looking at him going, Shh, this isn't the way we do it in our church. <laughs> we didn't do this 50 years ago. Somebody didn't read the doctrinal statement of our faith, of our denomination here. This isn't right. Looking at judgment and critique and not seeing what's actually going on, discerning as men and not discerning with the Spirit. And they looked and despised and despised it. Dignified worship. We're churches modeled on it. Our, our faith is modeled on dignified worship. The problem is, is the gospel's not modeled on dignified worship. That's the problem. What we model is not representative of heaven. Dignified worship. We have pastors who stand up there and speak, oh, so, and and look, I can do it. I've done it. If you listen to some of the stuff when I first started out, I was was dignified. I was using all kinds of crazy words and deep theological, because I can go there, but I don't, because you know why? It's not relative to the people. It makes me look good, and everybody's like, wow. The oratory skills of that pastor were just amazing. He is an orator. I mean, I literally felt a tear coming down my eye when he was speaking. Is, is that what I'm going for? Is that, is that my responsibility? And I'm telling you, if you listen to some teachers on the radio, you're gonna go, my gosh, this guy just, it's like, it's like velvet coming out of his mouth, you know? It's, it's so smooth. But what do you remember that they say? Do you remember anything? Because would you remember how quali- the quality and the dignification of which they speak? Oh, ho, 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 ho. And people go, you're too loose, Kevin. You're all over the place. Am I undignified? Does my undignification bring Jesus glory? then you will not see and you, I will be even more undignified than this. I'm telling you, to bring the people unto the Lord and to bring the glory to the people, that is everything. That's everything. That is the harmony of everything. And so Saul's daughter looked at him and despised him. And Michelle gets a bad rap. She gets a really bad rap. Why, the question isn't that Michal looked, so Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter, looked out the window and hated him because he was worshiping Jesus. Next slide. Question is why? Well, to go back up in the story, Saul had promised his daughter to David for killing Goliath. Saul reneged on that. He didn't give him his first daughter, he didn't. He gave her away, he says, I'm gonna make you this promise, David, and then he takes uh, his firstborn daughter and gives her to another man, right in David's face because he's trying to provoke David. Then he takes Michal, his second daughter, and tells David, I'll give you her, but you've got to go do all these crazy things for me. In other words, put your life at risk. Hopefully Saul was thinking he was going to get killed. Well, ultimately David does it and he gives him Michal as his wife. David had several wives, the Lord never allowed him to have several wives, but he did, and it was a problem for him. And the reason that they married, okay, so I, I said first service, I don't know why you wouldn't want more than one wife, guys. I, you know, I got enough problems. No, I'm serious. I got enough challenges. I don't have problems. Challenges with my own. With one. <laughs> of all of David's wife, there was only one that said she loved him. Only one. And the Bible says that Michelle loved him which to me, understood. the understanding is that David meant something to Mishal. He never said Abigail loved him, never said Bathsheba loved him, never said that any of these other people, all these other wives that he had loved him, but Michelle loved him, so she meant something to him. When David was on the run, Saul took her from him and hid her away. David never went for her. David never risked for her. David never pursued her. And you say, well, of course, why would he? But he pursued Abigail. When his other wife was taken, David went and got her back. He pursued her, but he never pursued, he never pursued Michelle. Hmm. He risked for Abigail. So what's going on here is that Michelle loves David. You mean something to me. She's jealous for his affections. That's what she is. She wants to spend time with him. I want to know, and here you go, guys. I'm going to give you a window into a woman right here. She wants to know that she matters to you, and she wants to know that she's special, and she wants to know that she matters above all other women. And all the women said what? Okay, I got two. All right, that's less than I thought, but more than, more than I needed. David didn't bond. David had a hard time bonding with people. You're going to see this portion of David's life where David was a very dysfunctional person and he had a very hard time being intimate with people. David had an intimacy problem. Some might would argue, no, they didn't. he didn't have an intimacy problem with the Lord. He had an intimacy problem with people. And what you're going to see as David's life trails through here is you're going to see one broken relationship after another because David did not know how to bond with people. David did not know how to be intimate with people and create relationship with people. And there's a lot of reasons for that because he came from a really jacked up home where he was, there's a lot of stuff. So he bonded with the Lord. There was an intimate bond with the Lord, but he had a hard time bonding with people. He was poor and intimate and she was poor in communication. She had an expectation of David that she never communicated. She attacked him, she dishonored him. Rather than explaining to him what I need from you, she just pointed the finger at him. You this, you that, you never, you always. Ouch. She was too afraid to be vulnerable with her own emotions. She was too lazy to take the time to understand why she felt the way she felt. Very important. David needed to develop the emotional tools that were necessary to relate not just to his wife, but to his sons and to his business associates and all of those people he had broken relationships with. All of them. He, had, he didn't have the tools to deal with people. He just didn't. And that's usually, guys, where the wife comes in. The wife is usually the emotional arbiter of the home. She, yeah, Well, yes. She's usually the one that teaches the guy how to be sensitive. She's usually the the one that teaches the man how to understand his feelings and how to relate to his feelings. But if she's broken and she's not willing to be vulnerable and she's not willing to go to the place that she needs to go, she will never be able to bring that forth in her home. And so long as he remains aloof and arrogant and unwilling to allow his wife to actually minister to him and teach him something, nothing's going to change. So it's got to play on both fronts, right? Men don't want to be vulnerable because it makes them feel weak. And guys don't like feeling weak. Women don't want to go there either because it makes them feel weak. But strength is perfected in weakness. Strength only comes through weakness. So she held bitterness against David, and she never asked herself why. A lot of ladies, you're holding bitterness against someone, and you've never asked yourself why. Why am I angry at David is worshiping the Lord? Wouldn't that seem like that's a problem? Because he's giving his affections to God, and he's risking everything, and he's throwing himself out there in this amazing way, and he's never done it for me. That was the answer. He never did that for me. He never, he never, he never went after me like he went after Abigail. You know, he never he never fought for my affections and I'm the only one who really cared for him. She never understood them nor did she communicate them and it ultimately ruined their relationship. So it's not enough. We have to understand our emotions. We have to understand why we feel the way that we feel. I shared this in first service. When I first married, we married, what, 28 years, somewhere in that range. And so when I was first married, I was having a hard time. And so uh, I did the only thing I knew how to do, fall on my knees and cry out for help. And so that was about all I could do. And uh, it's kind of like Adam. The woman you gave me, Lord, this woman you gave me. That's what Adam did. (laughs) I have a problem with the woman you gave me. It's not my fault. It's hers and yours. That's the problem. And so God began to deal with me and began to minister to me, which he always does. He began to show me things. And he began to tell me, one of the things he told me is he told me to tell Sherry, he told me, you need to get her to teach you how to love her. Teach me how to love you became an ongoing conversation in our marriage. I don't know how to love you. You need to teach me because I don't know how. And so what I would do is I would go to her and she'd have all these frustrations with me, you know, it's true. She'd have all these frustrations with me. I had some with her, but I don't know, dudes are just different. But she'd have all these frustrations, the expectation level is higher upon a guy. Guys, we're, just, we're just pretty mellow, you know. Guys are just kinda like, yeah, it's cool, it's all right, it's all right, you know. We just kinda cruise through the process. The wife tends to put a lot more expectations on the relationships. So men, you're not the only one, so let me just free you. So she would come to me and she would say all these things to me. And I, and I would go, and I would literally say to her, um, what do you want? And again, the Lord would tell me, ask her what she wants. And I'd be like, what do you want? And she'd just keep going on. And I'd go, no, tell me what you want. If you, I don't, you know, how in the world are you supposed to serve and love a woman when she doesn't even know what she wants? And she told me that. I go, what do you want? And I kept pressing, 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 pressing. And she goes, I don't know. She goes, I don't know. And I told her, I said, great. So when you figure out what it is that you want, you come back and tell me and I'll do my best to serve you with what it is you're asking of me. So she leaves three days later. She goes, hey, I'd like to talk to you. Can we talk tomorrow? I'll be like, yeah, okay, no problem. We'll talk tomorrow. So we go and talk tomorrow. And I'm sitting on the couch waiting for Sherry and into the room she comes carrying a legal pad. (laughs) She had a list (laughs) and she began to sit down and talk, take me through the list. And as she walked me through the list, I began to understand, and we began to actually have a constructive conversation about what was going on, and her expectations, and what she wanted, and why she wanted them, and what she, you know, and I would dialogue back with her, and we would we actually be, begin to form a relationship, <laughs> which is what it's supposed to be. But if the man is not willing to be tutored emotionally by his wife, there's gonna be failure. If the woman is not willing to tutor herself and her own emotions, ladies, you have a way more ability to do it than the man does. Dudes are just kinda like, I don't know, how do you feel, I'm not sure. But if you give a woman enough time, she's gonna, it's, it's amazing. Am I right, ladies? You can, if you, oh, you it's true. <laughs> woman can step back and understand what she's feeling and why. It's just a gift. We don't, dudes, we're just kinda like, I'm mad. I don't know why. And I'm really good at it now because she's taught me. I'm good at it. I'm good at discerning emotion. I'm good at discerning situations because she's, I've been instructed. And, God, and the only reason I've been instructed is because she's allowed the Lord to instruct her. And that's kind of how this whole thing works. It's kind of like that's what ends up happening. Like, Michal was hungry for David's affections. David does the same thing with his sons. He's going to do the same thing with his business associates. He does the same thing. He alienates them because he does not have the emotional tools to handle the conflict. If you do not develop the emotional tools to handle the conflict, failure is written in your future. If you're not willing to go to these places, ladies, and discern why you feel why, the way that you feel and change your perspective and actually come into a constructive understanding of how to make it work and be willing to do both parties, it's not gonna happen, it just isn't gonna work. Guys, we, co- we go off and we, when the woman is being whatever, we, we, can't, we, can't, we don't have the tools to bond with her, we go off and bond with the dog. So we're bonding with the dog. And then the woman goes, I'm getting rid of that dog. That dog is gone. What did did Toby do? He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. And she's subversively jealous of the dog because you're bonding to the dog and not to her. I know I'm sitting on your couch, but that's the way it is. So she had bitterness, never asked why. She had unspoken expectations. She never understood them or communicated them and it ruined the marriage. Last slide. They actually did have a child. They said it's all that that she she never had a child, but what the Bible's saying is from that time forward, and this is, Mishnah, Hebrew truth or Hebrew commentary Ithrium was the son of Eglah, Eglah means calf and it's, the rabbis teach that uh, Mishal's name was calf or she was like a fair calf, she was like a, uh, like a calf they can't figure out who Eglah was well Eglah is Mishal so most, particularly Christians, who can't figure out we can find all David's wives, which he had a handful and, but we, they can't ever figure out who Eglah was, where'd she come from, was well, Mishal that's who it was and it was a nickname, that it was a pet name that she had. So here's the takeaway. Honor, value, honor, its value is to be placed upon his presence. Here's our takeaway. We're to engage the Lord or honor God and worship God and value his presence on his terms, not ours. And here's a big one. Worship is not optional. Not optional. Joy and freedom is not optional. And we need to develop the tools for emotional intimacy. <laughs> Christians should be experts on relationships. We really should. We should be absolute experts on relationships. I'm not saying we don't have problems. I'm not saying we don't have dysfunctions, but we should at least know what we're doing. We need to develop commu- mature communication skills. Well, that person hurt me. I'm just never talking to him again. Can we grow up, please? Is that, is that possible that we grow up and not, like, anyway, sorry. Do, need to develop commu- mature communication skills. And here's another one. Any missed opportunity that you have had can be corrected. And there's your hope. Amen? So let me pray for you. Just receive. I just feel like the Lord wants to make reparations. There's some repairing that needs to happen. And I just want you to just um, I just feel like he wants to bring healing into households. So if that hits you, i not planning on this, but I just feel like he's poking me. So I just want you to open up your hearts and open up your households. Some of you, it's your house. I want you to see just you opening up the doors of your house. Some of you, you're offering the Lord your marriage. Some of you, you're offering God your heart in an effort to not only heal it, restore it, realign it, would make these things alive again. And so, just as you offer that to Him, I just want you to feel His presence come down over you. Just make it all, just like if, you, if it's your house, I want you to decide when to do it. I'm fighting it. That's why it seems so weird. I should just go with it. So, I'm just going to go with it. I want you to hold your house in your hand if it's your home. If it's your marriage, I just want you to hold your marriage in your home. If it's your life, if it's your heart, whatever it is, whatever you're offering to Him, I want you to hold it off to Him, hold it out to Him in faith. And I want you to see the Lord receive it. He receives it, even if it's broken, messed up, everything. And as he receives it from you, he's grateful. And he puts something back in your hand. And I want you to receive what he gives back to you. And whatever he gives back to you, if it's hope, restoration, maybe it's an object. If you give, put an object in your hand, ask him what the object is for. Let him tell you. Some of you, it's a word. Whatever he put in your hand, I just want you to draw it into your heart and I just want you to receive it by faith. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week. We have EMT and Discover Elevate and Firestarters at four. Have a great week. And prayer. We have a prayer team available as well. You need prayer? That prayer team's loaded this morning, this afternoon. You should go for it.